Not a bad time to be a Leicester Tigers fan as they took the title on Saturday at Twickenham and completed the most remarkable of two-year turnarounds. So congratulations to them. Today, we review the final as well as the Gallagher Premiership season as a whole. I'm rejoined by Chris Hewitt and Brendan Gallagher, as well as former England prop Jeff Probin. Right, we have a jam-packed episode and so much to talk about today. I'm back with rugby paper columnists Chris Hewitt and Brendan Gallagher, and we're also with former England prop Jeff Probin. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, you're a columnist for the rugby paper. What else are you doing at the moment? Uh, Not a lot. You you know, I I do quite a bit of hospitality, or try to, but obviously with what we've had over the last two years, uh, it's made life a little bit awkward, so... Uh, we've had to just get by with what we what we could. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you keeping up keeping up with rugby. We, we we're here to talk about the Premiership final today. Were you at Twickenham? Well, no, I wasn't at Twickenham. I, I for my for my sins uh, after I stopped playing, I was uh, put onto the RFU committee. Then I managed the England Under Twenty Ones, did some other bits and pieces, and uh, they made me a privileged member. But we're not privileged members anymore. We're we're called. Um, uh, distinguished members and and that means I get to go to any home games any internationals uh, free of charge which is not a bad thing wow oh that and I sit in the wrong very handy. <laughs> but you weren't at Twickenham on Saturday no no that, I, you know premiership final I think for me the premiership this year has been a, a bit of a false a false rugby you know it's uh and and yet Watching it live on TV as I did, it it was probably the best game of the season uh, as well, which a, a final should be. We predicted last week on the podcast, Chris, you were a part of that podcast. We predicted a Saracens win. I was actually the only one who backed Leicester Tigers, and I ah. did it just to play just to play devil's advocate. What were your expectations going in? Were you backing well, Saracens? To be honest as well? you, the the battle between Owen Farrell and uh, George Ford was was going to be paramount because uh, you kind of looked at it, and both of those two have. Uh, have had their day, shall we say? Uh, and Marcus Smith seems to be the the new kingpin at number ten. So, who was going to go on this tour and who was not going to go on it was uh, going to be decided by really what happened in the day. So, I was looking forward to that confrontation. Obviously, Macovina coming back as well, playing against uh, Genya, it was 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 quite interesting for them from. The point of view, the usual thing with when you're watching a championship game, the usual thing when you're watching rugby now is how the referee is going to decide what's happened in the scrum. So um, I, I thought that Leicester, you know, they've had a great season. They haven't lost at home all season. Playing away from home, going to Twickenham, perhaps put them under a bit of pressure, especially as they haven't been there for such a long time now. So, yeah, I was probably along with you that it would be it would be Saracens who, who pulled the plug and, and won the and won the cup. But uh, the reality is that Leicester put in a great game. Chris, you said last week that it was if Tigers were going to win, it would be a question of set piece and foul missing some kicks. I don't think that was the case in the end. What What do you think it was? Do you think it? I mean, the defensive effort from both teams was absolutely phenomenal. Do you think that was what gave Leicester Leicester the edge? Was that they they sort of beat Saris at their own game? Well, it's what you get from buying your crystal ball from Lidl. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was, I mean, Farrell had one of those days where he simply didn't look like missing a kick. So that's fine. I do think Leicester did pretty well at set piece. They were very, very competitive around the line out. You know, they, they, they scrummaged pretty strongly. Uh, you wondered whether Saracens would 
have a big or a bigger impact off the bench. Um, they may have shaded it there, but of course the denouement of the game, as is so often in very, very tight games, just hung around a sort of a single restart almost. I mean, it, you know, Saracens would have taken them into extra time if if the restart from, from Farrell's equalising penalty had gone a different way. So who knows what then would have happened. I thought Leicester won the game largely on defensive discipline, which I thought was absolutely outstanding. And it wasn't just a collective thing. They also took on the big name Saracens players. And I can't remember, and I only watched the game live, I haven't seen it since, but I can't remember, my hunch was that people like Jamie George... Um, and Maro Atoje, certainly not Billy Bunapolo, who played the best game I've seen him play for a very, very long time. But some of those real rock star Saracens were, by their own standards, which are very high, unusually quiet or did not have the kind of effect on a game that you often see them have. Uh, I'm not sure, actually, that uh, the scrum half Davis fits easily into what we've become used to calling the Saracen style. He's certainly a very different scrum half to a big cock or a Wigglesworth, who, of course, was on the other side. I thought they kicked well, Leicester. I thought they kicked very, very intelligently. There was a lot of kicking. It was an extraordinarily claustrophobic game, really. It was an intense game. I thought it was a proper game of rugby. It was a magnificent final down to the nth, didn't it? And um, and Freddie Burns, bless him, who I've known since he was about four. My son played a lot of rugby with Freddie. I know how capable, and he won't mind me saying this, I know how capable Freddie is of messing things up when it's really, <laughs> really important. And I couldn't be more pleased for Freddie and, and his family. It's a great family, um, full of rugby players, including his dad, who managed to get sent off in his mid-50s playing for a third team. So that's the kind of rugby family, the Burns family is. I was delighted for Freddie because he's a good bloke. And on this one occasion, he absolutely nailed the thing he had to do and couldn't be happier for it. Well, you say nailed. I think in the post-match interview, he said that the drop goal resembled a dead dog flying through the air. It, was, it, it, came, off his, it came off his nail. That's what I mean. <laughs> oh, see, okay, nice. Yeah, it wasn't his finest strike and he did and, make it more difficult for himself and, by and setting up to, to the right. I have to say also that I was incredibly pleased for Steve Borthwick, who throughout his career has had a rough ride from people, and very often a rough ride from people who should very well know better, actually. Partly because he was useless in press conferences. Well, who cares? In the, at the end of the day, who cares? Steve doesn't like the public-facing side of the role. He's not particularly attuned to it. He's a very bright bloke. He just doesn't like it very much. And that's fine. I think we should get over ourselves a little bit and, and just acknowledge what he brought to the game as a player and what he's going to continue to bring to the game as a coach, because I think he's he, he is a talent when it comes to... The way he reacted after the full-time whistle is not something you see often from any coach. Oh, the Alf Ramsey impersonation. That was very good, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah that yeah. was really, really and, nice. And, and the thing was with Steve is that wasn't an act. No, he, not at all. He, he's the last person on earth who would have thought to himself, do you know, if I win this game, I'm going to sit there like Sir Alf Ramsey. It, it was just an instinctive reaction. And that's Steve all over. Well, that image goes, in itself. He goes quiet, not loud. And that's, that, that's him. That image in itself, it captures, doesn't it? The, the, the journey that Leicester Tigers have been on. You could almost see you know, him going over in his head. Leicester Tigers, you know, we would have been relegated two seasons ago if it wasn't for the salary cap breach. And it sort of really just felt like the culmination of that narrative in a really beautiful way. We, we touched upon Freddie Burns a little bit and the rugby paper is particularly fond of him. And we know he's a fan of the rugby paper as well. Now, moment of his career, my favourite bit um, of his interview was when 
he said that four years ago, I um, don't know if you remember when he dropped the ball over the trial line, he said four years ago, he learned not to celebrate too early. And you could see as soon as he slotted the drop goal, there was an, an initial moment of elation. And then he was screaming at everyone, like, keep your heads, you know, we've still got a kickoff to do. This is coming full circle. And this is the total maturation of a player, isn't it, Brendan? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you could almost, you know, you didn't need to lit read. It was uh, be a champ, not a chump. You know, he was sort of pointing at his head, uh, shouting at people, you know, don't do what I did. Don't be a bloody idiot. Don't mar your career. You can learn. I thought it was a wonderful moment. I thought it was a wonderful sort of, you know, it wasn't much of a romantic match, but it was a wonderful, redeeming, romantic moment. And the way he just immediately plugged in to this was the moment he could make make good. Otherwise, brilliant. I mean, he's always been a, you know, he's a great bloke and he's a terrific player. I mean, he's a bit underrated in my opinion. Um, you know, I was delighted for him. And he seems, he seems, I think he's still on the lash now, isn't he? He was last seen somewhere wandering around Leicester on Monday night. It's hard to tell with Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> One point that was quite an interesting point of discussion, um, both during and has been after the game, was Alan Davis and the shoulder to the head challenge that he made. He got a yellow. This whole low degree of force, you know, wasn't a high degree of danger as a result, meant it was downgraded from a red to a yellow. Now, because Sarri's didn't win it, I guess it's kind of maybe been forgotten about a little bit more. It could have been a determining factor. Jeff, what was your view on that situation? Well, the problem we've got in the game now is that uh, there's a head protocol that's out there that means that uh, referees don't have a choice. If somebody makes contact with a head, doesn't matter whether it's deliberate, whether it's accidental, whether it's uh, reckless, that they've got to have a card. Now, to any to a certain extent, he was lucky just to get the yellow rather than getting a red. Um, personally, the, the interesting thing, thing for me is this weekend, we all, as, as much as we had the final, we had that Barbarians game, which obviously reflected back on the, the, the try uh, started by... Um, you know, Benny, and and when you look at that that try, the there are two incidents in it, both happening to to, to the Barbarians' fullback, where he gets his head taken, virtually taken off by a player, and the game just continues. Nobody takes any notice. Nobody sees it as as being that serious. You know, we've changed the way we look at those sort of incidents now, and to a certain extent, referees have no choice. We have to accept that. Um, if even if it's accidental, Will Skelton's thing in many ways it looked like he was just mucking about holding the player. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't actually completing a tackle, doing anything like that. Uh, and you saw those sort of that that sort of incident. It's 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 unfortunate, but players are going to learn to live with it, and they have to whether it has an effect on the game or not. They have to try and adjust the way they play the game to make sure that they don't get in those situations. So, in a word, was the Alla Davis shoulder to the head a red or a yellow for you? I, I think it was a yellow. Okay. It was definitely a yellow. Um, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't uh, a major blow. But players are also, you know, unfortunately, we are getting a bit footballish now. If somebody gets a, a touch to the head, they point to the referee and call on them to act. So they're looking for the yellow card. Brendan, Chris, any rebuttal to that? Either of you think it was a red? Well, I thought Skelton's, if Skelton's was a red, it was a red. Uh, and in fact, going back to the semi-final, um, Sarri's had three yellows for shoulders yeah. to the head, borderline. I thought they were probably red as well, if Skelton is the is the um, the criteria. So they're either all yellow or they're all red. Uh, 
it's just a bit frustrating. You get this inconsistency as ever. I, I, I'd say on the specific out of Davis incident, if that had been a bigger player, um, that may well have been a red. I, th- I think almost subconsciously, the referee will say, well, he's, he's done that to a hulking, a hulking great forward and he's a three-foot-one scrum half. Um, there's not much in it, etc." which may or may not be within the strict confines of the regulations. It's just been pointing out those regulations don't give you a lot of leeway. But there may have been a little bit from Barnes, who is obviously an outstanding referee on Saturday. But I think the really interesting um, point that Jeff has raised is the changes of tackling approach in the modern game, as opposed to the old days of the Barbars game in, in the early 1970s. Those, he's dead right to say that there were illegal tackles in the build-up to the great Gareth Edwards try, but they were what we would have called coat hanger tackles. They were, they were people sticking out an arm because they'd just been stepped or they're not in the right place. We've now adopted a much more rugby league style of upright, heavily physical tackling, sometimes with more than one person, in fact, most of the time, with more than one person. And if someone's going low, the other guy's going high. And if you're going to go high, it's quite difficult to wrap first and make contact second, because that really is a cuddle. So if you're going to make contact first and then wrap and you're high, there's every possibility, every possibility yeah. that you're going to get shoulder to head. That may be just a question of the contrasting heights of the players involved. You're bound to get it. So unless you just say the tackle height, and I would do this by midnight yesterday, frankly, unless the tackle height is going to go right down, and we're going to say waste or midriff or something like that, and anything above that, we're going to get pinned, then I don't see a way out of this because it's it's just a mess at the moment, a real mess, and it can ruin matches. And the other mess that this has raised, and you touched upon this briefly, Chris, was the issue of, as a 75-kilo man, is it more difficult to get sent off for something like that than it is as Will Skelton, 140 kilos? Because infinitely more difficult even though the tackle is equally as bad on both sides is that a balance that's correctable or is it just if if you're 120 kilos that's the risk you run knowing that you're capable of that much more force well it's not the purpose of the regulation that's for sure because they can't say you can hit the bloke and jocks if you're a scrum half but you can't if you're a second row the regulation doesn't say that so we're now down to just the impression that the officials have on the field of how dangerous it is and almost subconsciously they will say, if it's the little guy, it's less dangerous than if it was a big bloke. In which yeah. case, the colour of the card may be different. Yeah, no, absolutely. And question to the floor. Now, I've realised there's a bit of a pattern with this. If you look at La Rochelle's victory over Leinster, um, Bulls winning the URC, Leicester Tigers, Lyon. It's kind of been a season for the underdogs, in a way. I would argue that Leicester Tigers were underdogs going in. You guys may dispute that. I would argue that La Rochelle were underdogs going in. I know that Brendan, for example, may dispute that. Is there any particular reason that these underdogs seem to be prevailing, do you think? Or do you think, you know, a coincidence becomes a pattern at a point? Well, I'd say that um, a a lot of this season, we haven't really seen proper games of rugby. We've seen exhibitions. You you know, we've had games where where the losing side has scored five to six tries um, in the Premiership, you know. And so arguably, you could could say that um, the Premiership final, you know, one, one of the things that Chris said, was that it was a proper game of rugby because partly because of the, if you like, the intensity from both sides for 80 minutes. Um, there weren't easy tries. There weren't, the defence was very good from both sides. 
Um, there's been a lot of games this season where, where that hasn't been the case. And of course, mentally, if you're a player and you're playing a certain style of rugby and you're doing that week in, week out, when it comes to crucial games, you're also going to be off the pace. And that could be why, because it's been uh, the, in the French system, the French never are off the pace because they're always playing, if you like, it's a major rivalry, whatever game they play, partly because the way the French rugby is set up, uh, certainly at club level, uh, the clubs are normally a town club, the whole town to them. The, the grounds funded by the mayor, mairie, the, those sort of things, they're part of the people. I mean, he, even down in, in the lower leagues in France, level seven and that sort of thing, if they win a cup game, they put out banners saying uh, champions of France and the whole town celebrates with them. They have a focus that's probably a little bit better than our premiership was this year. You could argue it's because of the potential ring fence. Um, you could argue that uh, players want to show what they're, what they're capable of because of this wage cap that's actually reducing the number of players. Um, but it, it has had an impact on how the season has been played. On the underdogs, I think you can throw that forward to what I wanted to say about the French, actually. Underdogs in one way, that the two teams competing in the final on Friday night were first and second in the regular season. But they are two teams who are, in the case of Castro, shorn of any French current French internationals. None of them even in the French 23. And I've got three learned rugby gentlemen here. I bet you between you, you couldn't give me the name of more than five or six of the Castro starting 15. They are almost anonymous. And, of course, famously, they don't take Europe seriously. Or rather, they don't take away matches seriously. They play seriously at home. They're a small club, totally, I mean, an underdog club, totally dedicated to top 14 victory. And they've had a few, they've had a couple of titles. You know, this is not a, in one way, not a surprise. But you look at the, the, the team lineup, and it's still a team of almost journeymen. And I'd also put a shout out there, you know, that they take a punt. They, they go and sign Uruguay's scrum half, uh, Arata. Uh, and he's man of the match, scores a, scores a winning try. And in fact, Montpellier, their, their hero, was uh, the Georgian Aphrodisi, who was actually uh, a scrum half cut on and had kicked two 50-metre penalties at the end to win that one. So they're a team of stalwart underdog players. And I'm delighted both teams have got the final. And I suspect there's also an element of some of the big guns in the big French team. They're beginning to run out of steam a little bit. They've had 18 months at the, the coal face and you know uh, that that grand slam was hard won it was sort of over two or three years really to get to that point and the European campaigns so you've got you know Castro perennial underdogs are probably favourites funnily enough to win on on Friday night they just know how to win 14 matches I think one point to make about that that that, that French dimension of the of the discussion is that once again Philippe Saint-André who had a bit of a mayor, a bit of a mayor when he was in charge of the national team but of course, that's very different to using a rich guy's money to build yeah. a club side that wins things. He did it at Sale. He may well do it now at Montpellier. Who hard probably the biggest club in France never to have won a domestic title. I think I'm right in saying. Uh, Philippe is is terrific at that. And you can say, oh, well, he's brought in superstars from all over the place. But actually, he's brought in a couple of superstars and just sticks them on the bench. Pollard can't get a game. Leicester's, Leicester's marquee signing, their rock star signing for next year, cannot get a game. They're playing the Italian guy, Garbisi, as their starting 10, and have done for most of the season. So Philippe is particularly good at building a side 
on a, on a, a medium to long term strategy to win a domestic title. He was fantastic at it at Sale. Uh, he, he, he was at the heart of building, originally building Toulon back into something that resulted in them winning three European titles on the trot and he's now doing it at Montpellier so uh, a bit like the a bit like Steve Borthwick actually I think a bit of a shout out to Philippe who's been on the wrong end of an awful lot of criticism not all of it terribly well informed at times. Like you say Chris with um, Montpellier Zach Mercer has been a great player for him now Zach Mercer was out of the England squad when they signed him you know he was not in one way not a marquee yeah exactly not a marquee player but absolutely fundamental to what they do when they put their first team out and play well. Do we think that Castro's presence in the final, you could even say the Castro-Montpellier final as a whole, is a bit of an allegory for the state of French rugby versus the state of English rugby, where you look at, obviously, Sarri's Leicester, the bulk of England's superstars are in those two teams, or, you know, a significant chunk of them. And you look at, yeah, so many superstars in English rugby and then so few superstars in French rugby, but in France, you see a competitive league where all players are, you know, you can group them together in a certain way that you can't do with the English cohort, which is just so concentrated and as a result, so sporadic. I was going to say, I think that you're, you're missing a point as well. In French rugby, um, anyone can get picked. Even if you're in pro de, you can be picked to play for, for France. So they actually look at a great deal more players. In England, you can only be picked if you're in the premiership. That was part of the agreement between uh, Frank Cotton, who was negotiating for the RFU and the Premiership clubs, although all that time back in 1995 when the game went professional. So England actually has a far smaller pool of players that it can actually pick from. Um, added to which, if you look at Premiership clubs, um, even look at Saracens, look at Leicester, they have a number of foreign international stars who can't play for England. So uh, an international level, we 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 struggle to to be able to identify our talents, uh, and 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 also to have the right players and the right numbers of players in certain positions. It's just it's just a simple fact. It's it's not a case of bad selection or whatever. It's just a case that it's very difficult for a, a, you know. I hate to say this, but I have a bit of sympathy for Eddie Jones in the fact that how does he pick his players? He can't look at players. In the lower leagues, he, he had, doesn't have a county system to be able to check and see how those players are doing. Uh, he doesn't. He's uh, can only weekly draw from what the Premiership has, and if the Premiership has only two English fly halves playing in it or three English props playing in it, English qualified props, then he's stuck with those players, whether they're good enough or whether they're not. Is there actually a regulation which says he can't pick from the Championship? Yes. Because obviously, Prodi, uh, Prodi Jamine was picked from there. Um, the yeah, right. Italian wing and Caruso was uh, playing for Grenoble. Uh, in fact, half the world plays in in that league. I mean, without that, there wouldn't be world rugby. You know, yeah. Georgian, yeah. Italians, Uruguayans, Fijians. So you get the feeling that France can, as you say, they can dip down whenever they want. But I don't really see why that would be in England's interest not to have that as well. Well, yeah, it, it, well, this, it's a simple reason. It, give, it means that the Premiership controls, if you like, the, uh, the international scene and, and can dictate the amount of money that's available. If they didn't, uh, this was an agreement that was reached way back in, 19, let's say, 1995. Now, what you have to remember is at the time, Frank Cotton, as well as being on the RFU committee, was one of the owners of Sal. <laughs> and so he had, he had a vested interest 
in, in the clubs being able to do what they did. Uh, and, and it's still the situation. The only time we've had a change was when Saracens were relegated. But they were relegated because of the um, the, the wage uh, cap-breaking rule. Um, and the reality is, is if you look at what Nigel Ray did, all he did was copy what the French do. He, he ensured that his players would have a life outside of rugby by investing in businesses that they were involved in while playing. It's also the case, though, to broaden this out slightly, that the English and French models differ in one, to me, one very, very important respect. And that's that the development of French club players from a very young age comes from the clubs. It doesn't come from the schools. And it certainly doesn't come from a very, very narrow strata of schools that now play the game with any seriousness at all in England. France is a club-driven thing. People like Antoine Dupont came out of places like Castron, Ocean, all those kinds of things. They might end up in Toulouse. That's fine because there is a lot of traffic between the kids who are playing in those club development systems. There's not room for all of them in a top level to Toulouse professional squad. So they might move on somewhere else or Castron might send on people somewhere else. But that's where it comes from. It is worth remembering and it's narrowing all the time youth rugby in this country in terms of how you're likely to get picked for representative sides. It's narrower now. The 2003 England side that won the World Cup had two-thirds, two-thirds of that side did not go to playing schools. That ain't the case now. As I said, in French rugby, the um, it's it's the town. Most of the clubs are the town, aren't they? And uh, it, it's mainly down south uh, and they don't actually consider themselves French. <laughs> and they and and the the town are the rugby club, not the rugby mm-hmm. club is the town. It's the other well, way. Well, did you did you see the footage, Jeff, of the La Rochelle celebrations after the European oh. Champions Cup victory? That I mean, that was like Manchester City taking um, uh, the Premier League title on the open on the open bus tour of the city. It was an amazing scene. All wow. in harbour there. The whole time, the whole time, and they were. But Chris, did you see Bayonne when they won promotion? It was just the same down on the bay there, thirty thousand going nuts. I mean, well, that's the bar. They're different. Well, yeah. Where's (laughs) our passion gone? I mean, we used to club communities like that. The only time we've ever seen anything like that in England is when we won the World Cup for for a rugby team. We've never seen streets lined in in England as a result of winning the John Player Cup or or um, European champion. Well, I hate to disagree with you. I hate to disagree with you, Jeff, and intrude on private grief, but there was a time when Bath beat Wasp in the cup final at Twickenham, when there was a massive pitch pitch invasion by the Bath supporters before the end of the game. Exactly. I was playing in that game. (laughs) Well, that's why I've raised it. And I'd like to make the point, Jeff, that it wasn't because Bath had won the trophy, it's because you lot hadn't. (laughs) <laughs> no, the, the reason it was, was because we were just about to come back and win the trophy, and so in they made the in, in your dreams. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, different sides. Uh, Fred Howard, Fred Howard was the referee, called the game off before two minutes before the end of the game. Well, there was precious little space on the field at that point. I think it was. Uh, it's what you call a line across defence. I don't think you would have scored through three thousand bar supporters. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> different times, different days. But good fun. Good fun. My point was um, not so much about 
the passion necessarily, but the concentration of where players are and how competitive the league is. And you look at um, the French teams, for example, La Rochelle, they weren't even in the top 14 semis. Toulouse, Bordeaux doing so well. And if you could, you know, Castres, Montpellier is obviously the final. Compare that to Saracens left and no English teams made a European charge of any real substance. And just the golf in quality seems so big. For me, the Barbarians game was actually an accumulation of that. And you just saw some players who were just so far off the pace and they lost to a French fourth 15. As you know, you, you look at the players like Tom Curry, jo- Johnny Hill, Bevan Rod, who just looked way off the pace because they've not been playing competitive games. Well, that's, if you like, it's a, it, it's a result of not playing competitive games that you, 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 you can see players, you don't get to see players playing at their best. When you used to play week in, week out, I mean, when I was playing, we, we, when I, was early when I was playing as a youngster playing in the game, we'd play three games in a week. You know, you'd have you'd have a school game, a club game, and a county game. You play three games in a week. And and that was that was the norm. You know, now they don't. And and what's happened with the with, with the lockdown and things like that has has impacted on players. Yes, you can spend all the time in the gym. Not that I ever did, but um, you can spend all the time in the gym. Uh, and train, but that's not the same as playing the game. Wasn't well, it also that. wonderful, Jeff, to um, in a week where one or two commentators had uh, had a pop at rugby's drinking culture, shall we say? Barbarians, quite obviously, had been on it for four or five nights, according to George Cruz. And actually, the first 20 minutes on Sunday, they did look really rusty and whatever. And suddenly, when you get quality players who come from the same rugby culture, basically the top 14. Um, bang, half an hour, or no, more than half an hour, 40 minutes plus of superlative rugby. All the coaching in the world sometimes is wasted. You put good good rugby players together, get the vibe right, get the uh, get them having fun. Um, they're all of quality anyway. They're all quality players. And bang, off they go. It's fantastic to watch, actually. It is. It's, it's, that, it's that combination that gets there. I mean, in a way, it's, it's similar to the Lions, isn't it? You know, it's, uh, the Lions are picked from four countries and... You throw them together uh, and you try to make a team. The same with the Barbarians, except the Barbarians don't have the extra time. They're not on tour. It's a one-off match. You know, I captained the Barbarians many times. I've played for them many times. Um, scored, scored a try at post at Twickenham, between the posts at Twickenham for them against Australia. Playing for the Barbarians is different. When, you, when we used to meet up, you'd meet up. The first thing you'd do is go to a bar, have a beer. Then they'd take you out in the evening and we went and watched something at the London Palladium. And Norman Hadley, God rest his soul, the big second row from Canada, there was Philip Schofield dancing on the stage, at which point Norman Hadley stood to his feet and said, that man should never be near a stage. He has no talent. <laughs> Yelled it out in the middle of the thing. We would then disappeared into Carnaby Street for a... A late night, early morning, bit of training, and then play the game. Different style of rugby. Different style of rugby. And it's good to see the Barbarians still carry that forward, though, where they, they, make, they make a team out of individuals. And they, they show that you don't need to be training week in, week out together. You just need time to, to bond. It was also a classic example, wasn't it, of the commentator's curse, as they were spending the first 20 minutes saying, well, the Barbarians are just going to kick their goals. They're here to win the game. This isn't Barbarians rugby. This isn't what the crowd have come to see, etc., etc., etc. They end up scoring some of the most glorious tries you can imagine, because as in any game of rugby, unless, unless you 
unless it really is an exhibition game and therefore meaningless in any game of rugby. And if the barbarians is going to continue, you need an, 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 a, 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 some groundwork of seriousness yeah, about yeah, yeah. what they're doing. Because who the hell is going to pay and go and see something that's not serious? I mean, some will, um, because they've got nothing better to do maybe on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. But most people will, will see it for what it is. So I think about that barbarian side and that performance and the nature of the performance has done the barbarians club and its future an enormous shot in the arm. I mean, it's, it's, I think that secures the barbarians going forward for quite some time, actually, because no one will mock them. And I've been a mocker of the barbarians more than most probably down the years, but I thought they were magnificent. On I certainly hope that it does guarantee their life because uh, I mean, the reality is, is that uh, again, with the premiership, they don't release players for the barbarians. Back in, you, you know, a barbarian team would contain a number of English club players. The Premiership have, have put in very restrictive rules around when it releases players, when it doesn't. And that's all partly because of the player release it has with the RFU. If it was to release players for the Barbarians, if it was to release, say, Scottish players for Scottish co- uh, sessions when, when the Scottish coach wants them uh, without payment, it would uh, the RFU would have no reason to be paying them the amount of money they do for player release. I think Mark Regan picked himself up a fine, didn't he, by defying the premiership rules and going to play for the Barbarians, who wanted to make him captain. I mean, yeah. God knows who the other 14 were if Regan was captain, but they wanted to make Mark captain. And he said, I know it'll get me into a whole heap of trouble, not for the first time in his career, uh, but, I th- but I think I want to go and play. And he did. So Good. It, it, it's a great team to play for. You know, you meet you meet other players from around the world as well, and uh, that's part of the thing of being a rugby player, isn't it? You, is is the people you meet and the people you play a game with. That's why you do it. Do we think it, this is showing that English rugby is moving in such a different direction to global rugby? Because not just the Barbarians, but you watch the games of the top fourteen, the URC, um, Super Rugby, the type of rugby that they're playing is just so different. And you look at Leicester and Saracens making it to the final the two best teams in in the UK, but obviously it just shows that the brand of rugby that England or English rugby is producing is not compatible with that of the rest of the world at the moment. Well, what worries me is that we're becoming a bit insular, um, definitely. And just a small example of that is, uh, I did a little bit the other day about the the French Espoir Championships, the Under-20 Championships, Junior Championships, was won by Aurillac, who are a minute team, really, in, in the big scheme of things in France. And they've got no money compared with Toulouse, who they beat in the final. But what they do, they, they go scouting. They had six Georgians and three Dutch in their match day 23, um, and a Romanian. They had another load of Georgians and Dutch and Russians in their, their regular season. They were unbeaten 23 in the regular season. So they would just go out there and find other rugby influences, great athletes uh, from other cultures, athletic cultures, and that, that is absolutely part and parcel of French rugby at every level. And we, we sit on our little island here at the moment and we just won't indulge in that. You know, and we, England have got fantastic playing resources despite what Chewy says there. And he's absolutely right about the, the production line is, is, is not there as it was. But it's still a huge numbers uh, in terms of numbers um, playing nation. But we're not, but who? You know, we just, we haven't got those athletic talents at France nurturing, creaming off one or two of them perhaps, but also allowing allowing them to go back to their nations and at least bolster, you know, the rugby world to a certain extent. The T2 nations 
would be nowhere without French rugby. And I just think it, it the whole it just adds the whole mix and it makes the whole mix better when you when you get to the top. Yeah, France has been doing that for years, though. They've, they've done that. They they have the the European competitions. Uh, but there are other nations there as well. Germany. Germany play rugby. Most people don't realise this, but I played against them for the Barbarians. We arrived in Germany, um, did the usual drinking spells, the drinking culture, as they say. Got, got to the ground the next day to watch the Swedish women playing the German women. and noticed that over in the field over there, with a German team warming up and realised that at least half of them were actually playing in the French top 14 or uh, at the time and realised we were going to have a very serious game of rugby, which we uh, we eventually drew 22 all. Can you imagine how serious the game of rugby would be if Chechnya was an independent country, uh, Jeff? They'd have a pack, wouldn't they? They would, they would indeed. Yes, yes, yeah. You know, and, and More like, beer than the Canadians. Yeah. Time, if you did that, brilliant. Before we have a look at the England Australia, uh, sorry, the England squad to tour Australia to finish things off, Jeff, it's time for your random rugby 15. Say as much or as little as you like. We are a little bit tight for time, so the quick in quick fire would be best. And yeah, when you're ready, we'll get going. Get going. Nickname Fibbing. My nickname's Fibbing because when we toured Argentina, I was put into the program as Jeffrey Fibbing. and uh from that you get cursed for the rest of your life without a doubt best rugby memory best rugby memory obviously winning my cap first cap in 1988 in the parc de france most embarrassing rugby memory uh my second cap against wales at swickenham uh having taken four balls against the head in the first game i was being a bit cocky and a bit showing off playing against uh staff jones giving him a lot of pressure. Second half, referee says, get it up on the far side. So I lifted the scrum up and all Staff Jones said was, thank you very much. And the next thing, he put me straight in the air and I was waving to 75,000 people in the crowd. <laughs> Most embarrassing moment. Did you actually wave? Yes, I did. Did you? Nice. <laughs> As I came out the top of the scrum. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-game tune. Uh, we used to have Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Um, relax. Nice. Post-game meal. Five points. Best player you've played against? Best player I've played against, Pascal Andance. French, uh, Lou said he was an outstanding player. Played against him many, many times. Always aggressive, always hard. Never an easy time. Best player you've played with? I broke that into two parts. Uh, as a forward, Paul Rendell, the judge. Lou said probably played before Jason Leonard. As a back, Rory Hunderwood. Uh, you know, Rory didn't become England's leading try-scoring winger because of the being given open tries. He scored tries that no one else could ever score and was a brilliant player. Favourite player right now? Genya Ellis. Uh, I think he's, uh, he's a quality player. He's a good prop, doesn't brag too much. He, he doesn't like uh, too much attention. He just gets on with the game. Rugby idol? I haven't really got one. I come from Shoreditch, um, you know, uh, but they don't play rugby in Shoreditch. It's very That's simple. Very true. Uh, they don't play rugby because there's no grass. <laughs> That's very true. Favourite stadium? Favourite stadium, Parc de France. Obviously, first cap. It, it would always going to be the, the stadium you remember. You go there, the Dax band playing in the corner, the chickens thrown on the field, you know, <laughs> unbelievable atmosphere. Favourite gym exercise? I used to do handstand press-ups before a game. Wow. Uh, used to do, I, I think if you ever watch the 
1991 World Cup video. It's got us in our change room, and they actually show show me doing them. So that was really the only exercise I did. That's as a prop. That's impressive. Well, yeah. you, you know, they, I, I did it because I was actually avoiding lifting weights. We 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 had these coaches who were telling us that you should lift at least two thirds of your body weight if you want to loosen all your muscles before you go out on the field. Well, they didn't have a gym at Twickenham in those days. So handstand press-ups was the nearest thing to it. Wow. Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Well, I had an occupation even when rugby didn't. That's, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> uh, I was originally in law. I worked for a, a, a corporate solicitor in the city, uh, Durant Pierce. I was litigation uh, in their litigation department. Uh, when I decided to play rugby, I went and joined my dad's furniture firm. So I was a cabinet maker and a French polisher, which is a good thing because it saves me a fortune if the wife wants a new kitchen. <laughs> Superstitions. Uh, so I don't have any. Rugby law you would change? Uh, rugby law, I would actually change the law very simple, a, a very simple thing. The um, rugby has as, as allowed rugby league-style defence, rush defence to come into the game, um, but it hasn't taken the one thing that rugby league does, which is to force the, the opposition to retreat 10 metres at a breakdown. Um, so our, our defences are running from uh, literally the back of the ruck. Yeah. Short distance. It's one of the reasons why we do have problems with, with the tackle situation, which we talked about earlier, why there are head collisions and things like that. So I'd bring that 10-metre law in. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby? The people you meet. Wherever yeah. you go and you play the game, the, the people you meet, wherever you are in the world, you know, there are great guys, great people. Junior club rugby, best fun I ever had playing that and uh, growing up, which is one of the reasons why I played it. As I say, where I come from, they don't play rugby, but uh, went to a school, they played it, got into a club, junior club, was happy to stay there for years. Probably would have stayed there all the time, was it not for the fact that I was a leading try scorer from Loosehead Prop. <laughs> That's a, that's a great little accolade. What um, a fraud. What a fraud. <laughs> hey, hey you've got to realise that, you know, you, you talk about the modern props like Genya, like like uh, Carl Sinkler, the 60-odd caps. Sinkler still hasn't scored as many tries for England as I have. No, no one here. England's leading try-scoring prop. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be written on your gravestone, won't it? it? will do. Three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very, very quickly. The England squad for the Australia Tour was revealed yesterday. Plenty to talk about. I just want to know individually from all of you, who a player is that you're happy to see in there and who's missing? Who would you like to see in there? Can't believe Alex Mitchell's not on tour, yeah. given the season he's had. And I just feel he would be brilliant in Australian conditions. Uh, and also, I mean, Ben Earl has had a hell of a season. I'm not quite sure why he's dropped so dramatically out of contention. Having said that, I quite like the squad. There's plenty going on there. Um, and I think one or two people are going to have big tours that we might not be thinking of. I think Lewis Ludlam is going to have a bit of a breakthrough tour. I think he's been brilliant for Northampton in the last half of the season. I just saw signs of Joe Cockenasinger in the otherwise pretty poor England display against the Barbarians that he might be getting back to what he was pre-2019 World Cup. Um, so, And also Tommy Freeman is too good a player to be kept back much longer. Uh, it's going to be very interesting how England try and use him, given that we already have such a, well, England already have such a very fine fullback in Freddie Stewart. Yeah, plenty going on and, and really looking forward to it, actually. This is a summer tour that will count. Yeah. Chris? I, I agree with 
completely with with Brendan um, about Alex Mitchell. I don't yeah, understand. Yeah, we were speaking about him last week. Uh, I also I also agree with Brendan that Lewis Ludlam. I, I mean, wh- wh- whether he he cracks a, um, a, a test berth or or not, or he may be just carrying the bags. But if God loves a trier, that boy is on his way to heaven, isn't he? I mean, he has been at, for for a club with with effectively not much of a pack, a, a terrific back division, and they play the style of rugby which reflects the fact that they know where they're weak but they've still got to have someone fighting the good fight up front and I think Ludlam has been absolutely fantastic for them all season. Just to pick on one bloke I'm glad to see because he's one of those guys who was the talk of the coaching community for some years uh, in the way that Johnny Wilkinson was when he was a kid and Makabuna Pola was when he was a kid I'm, I'm pleased to see Jack Walker at long last making a bit of headway the, the move to Bath really didn't work for him for one reason or another. Uh, he's played a lot of good rugby for Queens this year in, in, in a decent pack of forwards where they do have some options. I'd like to see Jack really really come through and make, make a bit of a name for himself on the trip. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's interesting because really a lot of what he's taking to Australia is experimental anyway. You know, we're still learning about Marcus Smith, but he's probably blotted his copybook a bit, but when, when he missed those kicks at goal for, in that Barbarians game. Because the one thing that you need nowadays is, is a 100% goal kicker. And that's probably given Aaron Farrell a, a new lease of life. So it'll be interesting to see how all the players play down there and, and which, of the, which of the new players that he's brought in uh, will get the chance. Because, you know, with Eddie James, very- he doesn't get... He doesn't, Give them a chance, you know. He'll take them and there'll be guys who go on this tour. Uh, and I know what that's like to go on a tour and sit on the bench or not even get on the bench and, and train for for the number of weeks you're there and never actually get a game. So it'll be interesting to see how Jones takes this squad of players and which players get the shot uh, and whether he'll use the excuse that it was just experiment like he did after the Barbarians won by 50 points. It's, it's very interesting, yeah, yeah. isn't it, that, that, that New Zealand are in exactly the same position with their outside halves. You've got the, the real boxer tricks, the, the, the guy who can, who's capable of anything, Bowden Barrett. But when it really comes, really comes to the, 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 the big game, the must-win matches, where the winning margin is going to be pretty narrow and it's all going to hang on a couple of kicks here and there, I think the All Blacks will go for Richie Moonga ahead of Barrett. And he's yeah. no mean player, Moenga, of course. And it may well be the same. <laughs> and Eddie Jones may, may be preaching a completely different sermon at the moment. But when push really comes to shove, Farrell will find a place in the side, whether that's at 10 or 12. I agree with Chris. And I think that's, that's because Jones has boxed himself into a corner where he needs win now. You know, he's, he's had two unsuccessful... Six Nations. He's gone into what is a festival game against a, a random team, shall we say, the Barbarians, with with uh, an England side that weren't that uh, inexperienced, uh, and and yet they've been beaten by fifty points. It's it, he's he's got his back against the wall. He needs to produce something, even though the RFU can't afford to get rid of him, even if they want to. Marcus Smith is a bloody good goal kicker normally, and, and he's nailed some great ones for Quinns. But I think it's very interesting this dy- dynamic with Owen Farrell because he will, Marcus Smith will be playing 10, 
Owen Farrell will be playing 12, and Owen Farrell will be kicking the goals. So Smith has got that, no longer got that responsibility. And I think that almost kicked in on Sunday. He knows he's not going to be kicking goals for England in the, in the, in the near future, bar an injury to Farrell. And I just think that took the edge off his goal kicking. He, he didn't have to kick those goals. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how he plays as a 10, who is not, is not the team's main goal kicker, which he always has been. He's got to reduce totally now on his, on his game, not, not his goal kicking. So I think that's worth watching, how those two, how the dynamic between those two works. I do wonder, because Marcus Smith's goal kicking between roughly October until March was absolutely exceptional. And then he yeah. missed that kick against Montpellier, and it's just not quite been the same since. And I just wonder whether that's the type of thing that may take 12, 15 months to you know, get his processes back to the, exactly the same confidence that it was. And until that time comes, it will be great to have an Owen Farrell on the pitch to slot the goals, just as New Zealand, when Bowden Barrett's on the pitch, have a Geordie Barrett on the pitch to slot those goals. Yeah, precisely, precisely. The interesting thing about Marcus Smith is he's he's coming to the end of his brides his bridesmaids time, which is when you get away with everything. When you first come into the squad, you've got a couple of years where people um, people allow you to get away with stuff. He's coming to the end of that now. People understand him; they know what his game is. It could be the pressure that he's being put under as a player that's making his goal kicking go badly. Not the fact that he thinks that uh, he doesn't have to do it. It could just be the pressure. I mean, at the end of the day, in that Barbars game, it was still an England game. It was still him in charge of taking the kicks. Uh, and he missed them. <laughs> you know, On the subject of centres, Jeff, do you not think... I think we could have something really odd. I think, we, you know, he's got players like Jack Now, uh, Joe Cock and Singer. Even one of Tommy Freeman's stroke Freddie Stewart, I think he's itching to have a have a look at one of these hybrid backs. Yeah, I was thinking because yeah. it just remains perennially England's problem position. And the fact is that Owen Farrell is going to be back playing 12 until the next World Cup, bar an injury. So there is one berth to fill there, and England needs some sort of point of difference, some sort of strike power, something different. So watch this space, I'd say at centre. Yeah. Jack Noll looked quite lively at 13 um, on Sunday when he came on, I thought. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Brent. And 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 actually, I, I mean, look, looking at the, the construction of the squad, it does look as though Farrell's pretty much nailed on as a 12. And of course, Owen, unlike some number 12s of recent memory, in fact, there's a whole bunch of them, can pass the ball. And that gives you quite a few options in terms of size at 13. When Jeff was playing, and I'm sure you'll confirm this, the All Blacks, who are pretty much masters of all this kind of stuff, generally speaking, always played a second a second fly half. They called them, they called them first five-eighths and second five-eighths. They always played a playmaker at 12. And the big, horrible, nasty sort, your Frank Bunces, your Bill Osborne's, your Joe Stanley's, Tanu Manga, more, you know, more recently, they put it 13 when you're running into more of a soft underbelly of a defence. So you've got the two passing guys at 10 or 12 and they can switch around as first receiver. And then you've got the big beast at 13. That is something that England haven't done. They've been obsessed with size at number 12 for far too long. Just pure size and, and pretty much nothing else. Just get you over to game line and play off that. I think that's pretty much out with the arc now. I think they do need some playmakers. And if Farrell's going to play at 12, I think he could easily bring the best out of Marcus Smith. 
I think Manu Tuolangi has always looked best at 13 when he is running at that soft underbelly. You're 13. Yeah, no, it's very, very interesting. And that's why I think if you look, if you flash back to the autumn in November when Manu Tuolangi was on the wing and he cropped up in the centres, I think that could say that you could get Joe Thock and a Sigur, pick him on the wing and then just get him running in the midfield. Why wouldn't you? Because he's, he's, he's as big and as strong as Manu. There's no doubt about it, especially when he's fit and firing and he does look like he's getting there. I think if you, you're picking a Joe Marchant at 13, you've got that sort of explosive footwork. Joe Thogner Singer brings the power element. And so would Jack Knoll, for example. The back three is particularly interesting to me. Obviously, Freddie Stewart will start at 15. Who are you guys picking on the wing? And this is my final question. And then we'll be, we'll be, I'll let you guys go. Johnny May. I'd pick Johnny May on one wing, obviously, because of his pace and, and uh, the fact that he's, you know, he's a proven try scorer. The other one's difficult because, as you're saying, it depends on who he's putting in his midfield. It's an interesting one. I'm a bit confused with why what he's going to do with Harry Henry Arundel. I mean, it, there's no point taking him unless you're going to give him some game time, I don't think. And if you're going to give him a bit of a, a toe in the water, the Barbarians match was the obvious match to do that. So I'm a bit confused there because he is... I think we need to find out about him sooner rather than later because he could be a Rugby World Cup 2023 player. But it's not on the side. This Tommy Freeman's a hell of a player. Um, I've been a bit slow to catch on to him, but I've seen enough in the last couple of months to realise why everybody else has been getting excited. He can play 15 and 14, no problem. Uh, I think he'll feature in the debate. But then, you know, you start with May and May and Noel. I think you're right there. They are the, the experienced guys. You give them first dibs, uh, unless Jack Noel has been earmarked for outside centre. And you take it from there. But I would like to see Arundel get at least one test match. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Freeman feature as well. Arundel's been marked as an apprentice player, which is a bit of a concern. Oh, I hate that phrase. Why does he even do that? I Why know. Why does he do that? It's such an insult. He didn't look like an apprentice in Toulon, I tell you. No, he didn't. It's, it's, it's called <laughs> the government feel disappointed. That's what it is, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know uh, even. No, I didn't get on the field. It doesn't matter because I was only an apprentice. May as well call you a tackle, ta- tackle bag, man. The government, the government is very keen on apprenticeships oh. because they don't want to go to university anymore. So this is absolutely... <laughs> Come on, catch up. Yeah, get with the times, Jeff. <laughs> Chris, would you do you have anything to echo or counter any of what was just said about the, the wingers? I think I think Jack Knoll's quite interesting, actually. All, all coaches love Jack. I mean, his his work rate and just his just his general. You even saw it in that in that hideous game against the Barbarians. Is his work rate and his general ability to get involved is huge. And defensively, of course, he's absolutely outstanding. But he's not that young anymore, and he I don't know how quick he is anymore. And he's very injury prone. And they've left someone who is obviously defensively slightly exposed at times, but attacking-wise, a real talent. They've left Max Maidens behind. And, of course, he's multi-position, as is Jack. It's, whether that's the right call, I don't know. I think they've picked Jack as a, defense, as a defensive player primarily. I think he brings a lot of iron to the, to the England barricades. And, um, and it may well be that Australia will play at a tempo which will call on somebody like Jack Knoll to, to man those barricades. He might be very important. But whether he's the future and whether he even gets to next year, who the hell knows? No doubt it's going to be a very, very interesting tour. And we have a break of a few weeks now for the Rugby Paper Podcast, but we will be back to 
after the second match. So hopefully the series might be tied at one all or something like that. Quite, And it'll be poised quite nicely for a decider. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Thank you. so, so much for joining me. Um, and Jeff, all the best with, you said you're in the ho hospitality, you said, didn't you? So all, yeah, all, the yeah. all the best with those projects. I'm sure they're picking up now. And yeah, see you in a few weeks. The Rugby Paper is available, as always, in stores on Sundays or delivered to you through our digital subscription. We've got a short hiatus now for the Rugby Paper podcast, but do not fear, we will be back the week of July 11th to review the start of the summer tours. Mm -hmm.